Babalova Brews, deep thoughts fermented over time and text. I'm your host, Aaron Creek Juice Faverka, my co-host Gumby. Hey, what's happening? George is running late, but he swears he's going to be here tonight. And we've got David LaGuardia. Thanks for having me. Dave. Our pleasure. How's it going, Dave? Good. Life is good. Yeah, excited to be back with Bible Over Bruce. Work. It's been about a year and a half, so... So it's good to be back. We're excited to have you. I haven't gotten any smarter, though, so (laughs) not that I was smart. I doubt that. We are starting with uh, Tin Cup. It's a a pleasant little whiskey that um, I've tried diving into. It's uh, Tin Cup is a blend of two great American whiskeys, each aged in th- number three charred oak barrels. High rye bourbon distilled and aged in Indian, Indiana, I'm sorry, is blended with a small amount of Colorado single malt whiskey. These whiskeys are then cut with Rocky Mountain water. Tin Cup is named for the Colorado mining pioneers and the tin cups from which they drank their whiskey. Hopefully they weren't made up lead. Mm. <laughs> bourbon barreled whiskey yeah it, it does have a very pleasant i'd say uh caramel color to it yeah um i like that and it's it has like a citrus sweet smell. maybe like a ginger snap type of yeah i do like that it's not burning on the way up so i'm questioning it <laughs> i found this to be very smooth okay hmm it's good. It's pleasant. Yeah. So far, I've enjoyed this one. Hey, I can really drink this. Yeah, that's good. Right? <laughs> Do they recommend you drink it chilled, or is that just your preference? I So the way that I normally have bourbon is with one or two ice cubes because it opens the flavors up. You'll find that if you have an ice cube in it, each sip tastes a little bit different from the previous sip. It just opens those notes up. So, I, I've I've grown to really be enjoying bourbons lately. Oh yeah, the science <laughs> of drinking bourbon. Huh? Yeah, and hey, fun note by the way, bourbon and whiskey in general is the only liquor that cleans the cup. Huh. So they did a test. They actually brought a lab in and did a test because they wanted to find out if you had dirty ice cubes inside of your drink. What is the one liquor that would actually still be clean? So, you know, in order to, you know, like, let's say that there's a fly. That's right? pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So they wanted to do that study. The only one that killed 100% of all the germs was whiskey and, and bourbon. Yeah. That's, that was it. Everything else left a little bit of something in the, inside the water. Our drinking is sanitary. <laughs> See yeah. that? I mean. Yeah. And fun note, they did find out through recent studies that whiskey has all the same, uh, what was it called, resveratrol, right? It has the uh, the antioxidants that wine has, hmm. and in a smaller form factor. So two to four yes. ounces of this is the equivalent of like an eight ounce cup. It's and it's so it's benefiting our health, is what you're saying. It is. <laughs> it actually is. See that. <laughs> I hope my wife's going to drink more whiskey. <laughs> Are you listening, Jen? <laughs> I do this for my health. So, yeah, there actually is health benefits. Obviously, they do say that you probably should stick to two to four ounces, but, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. some days I just feel healthier. 
<laughs> yep. <laughs> so, uh, fun topic tonight. It's going to be the church and science. Mm, we've been waiting for this one. We have. I cannot wait for George to finally <clears throat> get here. So, the atheist protest is that religion is anti-science. That is like the biggest, the biggest one. They're anti-science. They suppress science. Uh, all Christians believe in a, a six thousand year or Earth, and um, yeah, they believe in the magical guy in the sky. And mm-hmm. I hear this from atheists all the time. Yeah, I mean that's pretty much their their foundation, isn't it? To, it, to, to debate us. It, it is. I have found so agnostics are definitely a bit more open-minded um and not all atheists are atheist a lot of atheists just refer to themselves as a- as atheists but they're actually agnostic um even like sagan even carl sagan was an agnostic they i mean he had the claim of atheist but when asked he said i, I just don't know and i can't know so he was actually agnostic so that was honest and um the biggest claim to fame against the church has always been Galileo. <laughs> In fact, John Henry Newman, who actually was a an Anglican uh, convert over to Catholicism, and uh, some really cool writings, by the way. He has some very, very cool writings um, against you know suppression of people's rights and stuff like that. So he's fun to he's fun to read. Um, but even he said Galileo was the one stock argument against the church and that was one of the things that had prevented him from coming over to catholicism when he was still an anglican so but i'm sure you guys heard about you know stories of galileo right well yeah (laughs) what were you taught in in school it's been a while you know (laughs) (laughs) but as i recall you know the church wasn't uh and totally at ease with some of the things he was uh, thinking. All right. Um, you know, called into question some of their beliefs, and there was discomfort with that. And even, as I recall, a little bit of persecution. <laughs> and there was some, but the story's been misconstrued over the years. Um, unfortunately... I hate to say this, but after just doing random Google searches to research for this episode, I now not only call people into question when they bring up Galileo, I have, I have now referred to them as historic morons. Oh, okay. Because it's a kind of a misnomer on what happened to Galileo, and a cursory Google search clears it all up. Unfortunately, people demand to hold on to the old, I hate to say this, Protestant idea that it was the Catholic Church that persecuted him because that actually came down through some Protestant writers. You see that sly look to me he gives me when he says that. (laughs) (laughs) So wait a minute, before we tackle Galileo, did he promote, uh, was it geocentrism or heliocentrism? Okay. It was one or the other. He did. He did. That's 100% true. So just to be clear, though, you're not saying Galileo 
was not persecuted, but you're blaming it on the Protestants. Yeah, no. Oh, but okay. All right. Sorry. I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> no. The, the, the misinformation of the story of Galileo, it was from some Protestant historians. Um, mm. And I'll leave their names out of it. But <laughs> So you say the Catholic Church kind of took the brunt of the blame for his persecution. There was more things involved. Now we're going to go over his, his story because it's... That's probably fair. It's very interesting. Because Catholics... So. Seem to take a lot of the brunt of the blame for a lot of things. So, where we do, and I'm, I'm saying that as a Protestant, <laughs> right. I really believe that. Right. Well, and as a Catholic, I'd say I think probably sometimes we deserve it. So I'm I'm okay with that. All right. <laughs> I mean, there honestly, there was, there was one or two, um, well, two, there was two popes that they weren't. They weren't anti-science, mm-hmm. but they definitely wanted to put science on a back burner. And uh, not too long ago, what was it in the 1700s, I think it was. But um, so sometimes it is rightfully deserved. And, and they didn't suppress science, but they didn't help move it forward. But very few popes have been like that. That's a good thing. So Now, before we go any further... Let's try out this uh, this brew dog. Oh man, I was enjoying my my bourbon whiskey. <laughs> I better finish it really quick. Go ahead. While you do that, I'm going to talk about this. So brew dog, and this is Elvis juice. This is an IPA like no other. Elvis juice puts grapefruit center stage, primed with tart pithy grapefruit peel for a citrus assault on the senses. This zest zenith delivers intense U.S. hop aromas. Gigantic grapefruit notes are tailgated by orange and pine, all piled high on a caramel malt base. This rig is juiced up and ready to roll. It has an ABV of 6.5 and an IBU of 60. I love the writers of all beers. <laughs> it doesn't matter which beer you drink, they're awesome. <laughs> right. <laughs> Where did they get this language? <laughs> Probably from watching movie reviews. <laughs> oh, man. So, right from the start, this actually has a lot of head. Like, a lot of head. Like, so far, half of my drink is head. And we don't have to clean the glass out because... <laughs> <laughs> Brand new glasses... Um, now here's the cool thing. If you're on camera and you want to see these cups, I'm going to thank my brother-in-law, Mr. Chris Eisenman. He got us a set of six and uh, for the show. These are pretty. Yeah. They're nice. They have that nice twist to them. They have that crystal look. Look at that color. Right? It's pretty. <laughs> yeah, this is pretty cool. It has, again, kind of like the whiskey. It has a nice yeah. caramel color to it. Uh. Wow, very citrusy notes. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's all orange peel on the top. That is all orange peel on the top. Yeah, you're right. Ooh. Okay, so that's good. I am getting, I'm definitely getting orange peel. (laughs) Yeah. Definitely getting vitamin C right now. (laughs) We got our antioxidants, right. our vitamin C. <laughs> right? This is just a health night. This is a great health night. <laughs> These are the health nights we've earned. Actually, you know, they say cigars are really good for you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They uh, they help block the fog. Right. right. <laughs> That's good. It's 
it, it is really orangey, but I like There's it. There's something else. There's like a clove. I taste a little clove in the back. And it's not, it's not heavy, but I can taste a little clove in the back. And it's just bodied enough. Mm. Like some of the fruit drinks to me are too thin. Right. And, and some are too tart. Yeah. It still mm. tastes like beer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. Wow. Elvis juice has definitely earned its uh, <laughs> a king status. Don't be cruel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go throw on some uh, velvet shoes. <laughs> mm. Please don't tell me you have some. I don't. <laughs> but drinking this, I wish I did. Though I would have. <laughs> Elvis sang a mean gospel song too. So yes, I'm he sure did. He'd approve. Yes, he did. Yep. Yeah, I've made jokes in the past because his. His favorite sandwich was banana and peanut butter. And and nobody got the joke. Only you know that stuff. <laughs> could, could you explain the joke? I feel like we should... Oh, we had, we were drink, drinking a beer. It was a banana beer at the time. It was a, actually a banana was, porter. Yeah, it was it, really good. It was fantastic. And I made the joke and nobody got it, so I had to explain it. So it wasn't funny in the end, but it was informative. <laughs> we just all nodded and like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we know what you're talking about, Aaron. I guess I'm the only classic, you know, reader here. Uh, fun stuff. <laughs> a good beer. It's good for the summer, too. Yeah, really good. Yeah. Way, way good. So, back to Galileo. Has anybody... Can anybody share any stories about things that they may have heard in school? No? Maybe? I didn't know him personally. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's the fun part. So, so if I think back to my, I mean, the only thing I really know about him remembering is the, if the Earth revolves around the sun, or are we all moving around the Earth, or yeah, and in the common, like the common idea was that he was the 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 rogue, the radical that thought, hey, mm -hmm. maybe we're the center of the galaxy, and that was that was the. And that's why that's why the church persecuted him, right? Because it goes against the Bibles. Well, obviously he's wrong, right? And that was that's like the, the thought that people have about him was that he was persecuted because he was the scientific guru of his time. And the ancient unthought people wouldn't support him. Mm. You know, in fact Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I actually love. I actually love Neil deGrasse Tyson, but <laughs> Apparently Gumby doesn't, <laughs> um, but he actually didn't do him justice because he played right into the. the uh, unfortunately, I have to call Neil deGrasse Tyson at this time. I have to call him a historic moron in this one, <laughs> because he endorsed the myth and he didn't explore past what a classic textbook said. Frankly, I was disappointed in him because. Oh, Again, I like the guy. I have some of his audiobooks. I enjoy them. But before you unpack the myth, then let me ask you this really quick. Go ahead. So, would you consider Galileo at the time like a fringe scientist during his time? And, and no. during his time, was he on the fringe of scientific thinking or was he in mainstream thinking? Here's the here's the, the thing. I would I would classify him as somebody who didn't do what he said he would do. 
All right, go ahead, unpack it. (laughs) Obviously, I need unpacking. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to drink a little more Elvis. All right, while you do that, I'm going to read off right here. Um, This is actually from the Mega Center. Uh, Mega Center, I just found out doing the research for this. They're really cool. So um, Father Spritzer, I believe it was, or Spitzer, uh, he's the one that heads this up. Really cool research on showing you um, the scientific backgrounds of the church, and uh, along with philosophical concepts and some light apologetics, more based towards actual historical context. Fun stuff, good stuff. So I can definitely highly endorse the uh, the Mega Center. Check it out; they're on YouTube and they're online. But uh, this comes from them. Uh, the trial of Galileo Galilei must be seen within the context of the high group culture of his day. The Jesuits of the Roman College, a religious order of priests within the Catholic Church, helped Galileo to confirm mathematically his version of the heliocentric theory and considered him to be an esteemed colleague and friend. Now wait, what was that? The Jesuits were actually endorsing him? But I thought that they were trying to suppress him. One one thing though, and... <laughs> I, I didn't do my homework for tonight, so full no, disclosure, no, I'm no, just no, joining in this be with my friends, but uh, I, I don't think it was too much after this that the church temporarily disbanded the Jesuits. <laughs> so, it, so it is possible, and again, saying I, I don't remember all the information that, you know, thought- maybe the... the uh, the Jesuits may have been open to him, but that, that doesn't mean the rest of the church was on board with what he's saying. And, uh, you know, so that would be a, something, the skeptical side of me would wonder about that. Is this kind of apologetics and we don't want to consider that mm-hmm. maybe the church was resistant to science, so we look at it through a lens of, well, how in this story, you know, do we not consider that maybe, you know, the church was in fact resisting some valid information and that's well played well played yeah because the jesuits they did go rogue a couple times throughout history and the pope did have to kick them out well yeah a little uh... (laughs) (laughs) anyways go and finish here (laughs) all right so uh the relationship broke down only when galileo disobeyed the pope about announcing the heliocentric universe as fact before adequate astronomical observations could be made to confirm the theory, a technique called stellar parallax, and I'll get to that in a second. He exacerbated the strained relationship when he implied that the Pope and the Jesuits were fools because of their reservation. As with Bruno, Galileo's trial, which resulted in his exile, centered not on heliocentrism and scientific method, but on his premature proclamation of heliocentrism as fact and the violation of his promise to the Pope not to publish it as fact until proven. So that's what it centered around. So they had issue over the way it was delivered. Yes. More than... Well, because instead of teaching it as theory, he taught it as fact. Gotcha. Now, mind you, he couldn't prove it as fact. Right. Now... So let me unpack a little bit of this because this is kind of interesting. So Galileo, Galileo not only said that this was a fact, when he published his work, 
where he showed in his manual about this topic, where he showed the Pope, he showed him as the fool, and he sh- <laughs> he showed him spouting uh, idiocracies. Mm. So he was making fun of the Pope in his text and publishing his fact without being approvable. So I see. Yeah, so you could see where a relationship may break down over that. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess if I'm the Pope at the time and you have this other new competing, I don't know if dogma is the right word, but another ideology that's going against the, the, the strain of thought at the time, how it can be viewed as uh, threatening. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not speaking for the Pope at the time. I'm just saying that, you know, if, if your, your thinking at the time was dominant. Right. And then all of a sudden this thinking comes along that hasn't been proven, quote unquote, whatever we're establishing or defining proven. Um, I could see why they, there, there would be issue over that. Absolutely. But it gets more interesting. <laughs> So, dum, dum, dum. Cue, <laughs> cue music. <laughs> so Galileo, he did lie to the Pope. It was Pope Pius VIII, and he uh, would. Uh, <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> so he did lie to him because he told the Pope that he would not publish this fact. That's not cool. Right. Yeah. So here's that footnote. The stellar parallax technique is essential to confirming the Earth's movement around the sun. But astronomical observations of distant stars were not accurate enough to confirm the Earth's movement relative to the sun until over 200 years after Galileo. In 1839, by Frederick Bessel, the Pope and the Jesuits were justified in asking Galileo not to claim his theory as fact until his, until his critical astronomical observation had been made. Unfortunately, he chose not to do so. And the controversy and breakdown of a long-standing collegial relationship began. So, it should have been... He was justified. He was justified in doing what he did in putting him on trial and, you know, calling him a bad boy and giving him some punishments. But <laughs> now, now, here's the fun part. So, the fun part is, and I didn't put this in my notes, the fun part is is that it's often said that Galileo had to serve a bunch of time in prison away from everybody and guess how long he was in prison one day he spent one day in prison he was put in house arrest after that however he also had access to the gardens and everything else yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's not like he was it's on like Bernie Madoff in prison right <laughs> right yeah. so now on top of that not only did they give him the rights to walk around all the gardens which as you know are huge for the area right not only did they put him on house arrest so he had access to his entire house not only did they allow him to keep working on his findings <clears throat> okay they also gave him his own servant to cook him meals. So it's not like he was living a hard life. So it sounds political to me. So here's my question then. If Galileo was going to get the approval of the church, you know, and stamp of approval, recognition, and he knew that it was just a process, why would he do that knowing that? Like what was the point behind releasing it early? Ego. Okay. But, you know, there's a part of me that wonders if additionally, part of what's playing out here 
And I, I don't remember exactly when kind of science as a discipline, you know, the scientific method mm-hmm. developed. It may have been even a little bit after Galileo, but kind of at the core of it is, is that Gumby, myself, you, we have access to truth. We do. And that was that is threatening to somewhat of an authoritative model where, you know, you, you want to have this sense. And, yeah. and in some ways in the po- politics of that time, there was kind of a tension between, you know, the popes, the kings. Yeah. Um, there was. About, you know, who really had the power. Yeah. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, kind of the, the additional thing is this move towards a more scientific view is where you start getting a move towards democracy. And, you know, the church was very uneasy with democracy. It um, was. Yeah. You know, so so there's probably a lot of layers of things yeah, that are playing factors. out, yeah. you know, in, yeah. in this. Yeah. Not to mention you had the internal, you know, conflict with the Borgias and the Medicis and all that going on at the same time. So, <laughs> so was it just a, a dumb move on his part? I would say yes. Okay. Now, I have reason for saying yes. Has anybody ever heard of Nicholas Copernicus? Mm-hmm. All right. So Nicholas Copernicus, first off, Nicholas Copernicus, Copernicus was a devout Catholic who took minor who took minor orders. Shameless plug. As that Catholic cleric, and was a canon lawyer within the Catholic Church. But he did not proceed to ordination as a priest. Now, here's the fun part, ready? So, in a minor astronomical work, Commentaria, I'm going to totally butcher this, Commentarialis, <laughs> not printed during his lifetime, he first proposed a heliocentric theory of cosmology, placing the sun at the center of the solar system. This led many of his friends to request that, his, that he publish his findings. Now, get this. Among these were... Cardinal Schoenberg of the Roman Curia, Bishop Geisa of Colm, and the future Pope Paul III. Schoenberg insisted that Copernicus publish his material in the interest of science. So how interesting is this that you do have somebody now mind you, and he was allowed inside of the Jesuit schools, he was allowed and he did teach a heliocentric theory to the universe. Not only that, he was endorsed mm. because he taught it as theory because at that time, they did not have the technology to prove it. And so, but as a theory, they said, yeah, go ahead and teach it. Until we can go further, teach it as a theory. And they yeah. backed him. He had cardinals and bishops and even the future pope backing him on teaching it and publishing his findings. Now, mind you, he lived before, okay? We're talking almost 100 years before that, okay? He, he was already teaching this. So it was already being taught in Catholic schools. So, again, Galileo was just being a little bit egocentric. Instead of, it's, he wanted to say it was a fact. Oh, what you did there, nice pun. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to teach it as a fact when it could not be proven as a fact. And it gets worse. Because to prove his findings, what Galileo said was, well, look, the water has waves. So because the water has waves, obviously the earth is moving around the sun because it's moving in. Now, anybody who knows meteorology knows that's not how it works. 
And even during that time, they knew that that's not how it works. So he would, had very, very sloppy evidence for his findings, which again is why they could not endorse it. It wasn't until much, much later in his life that he had more solid evidence to put forward, and 200 years later when we had the technology to prove it. So, and again, Nicholas Copernicus was allowed to. Now, to further endorse what I was saying earlier, there was a young Lutheran. Uh, his name was Redicus, left his chair of mathematics at Wittenberg, where in 1517, Martin Luther had posted his 95 theses on a church door to work with Copernicus in Poland. Now, that's just cool. This is like the first ecumenical, well, not first, but one of the first big ecumenical uh, collaborations, right? This is awesome, right? Um, a summary of Copernicus's findings was released, and it met with a tremendous hostility from Protestant theologians. There was no such hostility from Catholics. Redicus was then barred from returning to his post at Wittenberg. So it's really fascinating. And do you know why? Do you know why it was that way? It was because the literalism of the, literalism of the text. So at the time... Luther had fully established uh, a literalistic reading of the text. Whereas, as, as you know, Catholics have a little more loose reading of the text because you have to take in mm -hmm. um, the context of the cultures of the time. You know, who wrote it? Why did they write it in this fashion? What culture did it come from? What's the background to it? But Luther had imposed a much more literalistic reading of the text. And some fathers did, too. Yeah, and I think the, the literal reading of the text was actually pretty much, I think, fairly universal still at that point. Um, a lot of the contextual reading of scriptures, would, which allowed for maybe a little more space and I don't, well, I'm not sure where your PowerPoint will go here, but, you know, <laughs> uh, as you get into things like evolution... Um, but a lot of the the contextual readings initially were that approach was uh, Lutherans, I think Episcopalians. So a lot of the early scholarship was Protestant in that area. But I think at this point it was still across the board. No one was really getting into the contextual reading um, of scriptures. Well, Augustine actually wrote for a much looser interpretation. That's true. Um, going back to the fifth century, so um, but he he really endorsed that to read it more as as symbolic um, than to read it as literal. Uh, Justin Martyr did as well. So you had uh, you had some early church fathers. But at that point, where there's just Christian, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That, so yeah. we that's all true. that's we true. all kind of yeah. But that's I mean Augustine. Really, a lot of the church is built on 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 uh, Saint Augustine. So. And uh, I think that's, that's probably why he prevailed and his thought process prevailed of reading uh, the text as more symbolic and, right. uh, and more from a cultural perspective than a literal perspective. Yeah. Well, and you so, could even make a case Jesus doesn't apply, you know, when you talk about the commandments, doesn't apply them literally all the time. So there's kind oh, yeah. of an understanding that, you know, it's read through a lens. Yeah. Well, the apostles themselves, when they reinterpreted Scripture, they would actually reinterpret a different idea, a different, uh, a different symbolism on top of what, what they thought was the original context, and they would reapply it. Um, 
even when you get down to uh, the virgin birth. Because if you go back to the original virgin birth uh, storyline, it happened during the time of that king. And, and we can we'll build on this because mm-hmm. I, I want to include this in a, in a in a future prophecies episode. So I don't want to build it out right here, but that actually happened during the time of that king, and so it was reapplied because uh, Semitic prophecy is not like what we think of prophecy. Semitic prophecy is redundant. It's watching how it happens again through history. So some, the Semitic idea of prophecy is that it repeats itself at least three times. Oftentimes more. Patterns. Yeah. yeah. Patterns, exactly. So, so you're saying he was... Ba- so Wittenberg barred him, basically. Yes. You're saying because literalism of the Bible. So he was barred from teaching because he was working on something that, quote-unquote, went against Scripture. Okay. Because in the Bible it references the earth as never moving. And so everything revolves around the earth. And so he was then barred from returning to his post. Now, at this time, I'm sure Martin Luther was not in good standing (laughs) with the Catholic Church, though, right? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So I could, you know, I could, I could know if you see why he would be barred. I mean, all right. Yeah. Interesting, right? It is interesting. So, but again, Copernicus was endorsed by all the major leaders of the church to go ahead and teach the heliocentric universe as theory. But the only thing they asked is that he held off until, as as far as saying it was fact, held off as saying it was fact. (laughs) So, which, I mean, that's justifiable. But was there other other things too involved in like, as long as he, you know, disavowed Lutheran, any Lutheran teachings or? I mean, there's never any of that mentioned. Okay. Yeah, there's never any of that mentioned. And, I mean, th- that I could find anyhow. Okay. So, uh, Nicholas Copernicus was in very good standing with the Catholic Church. And again, he lived way before, I mean, decades before mm-hmm. um, Galileo. Right. And, and he taught a heliocentric universe. So, <laughs> again, Galileo was being kind of egotistical. And again, if you go to his writings, he makes fun of leadership and he makes fun of the Pope. And that's not usually a good way. I mean, let's face it. He was kind of being Trumpish. <laughs> he was that's his version of tweeting, right? So <laughs> Okay. I'm not being political, I'm just giving an example. <laughs> well, there is some sense of politics in it though. I mean, was the church was this legalized? I mean, the church legalized at the time? What do you mean legalized? Like, I mean, was the church the official stamp of the ruling authority of all I the mean, they're the that ones time? that started all the universities. Yeah. So, I mean... I don't view it as completely spiritual. <laughs> it has to be some politics. Well, there was a lot of... I mean, it, there was a lot of academics involved. Yeah. I mean, they ran all the academics. I mean, although... Going back to the start of science, because uh, you referenced that... Um, believe it or not, one of the first scientists was actually a uh, an Arabic man in the ni- in the nine hundreds A.D. Huh. Um, I didn't include him in the slides, but he's it, it's fascinating because he went through and he had some really good, remarkable discoveries. So, 
I believe he came from the Damascus area. And the Damascus area was like the minefield for like like in the in the, hotbed. In the Middle East. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They were I mean, they were amazing. I mean they their their discoveries were remarkable. Way before Europe they discovered the circulation of mm-hmm. of blood in the body mm-hmm. and um it was I wanna say it was Ibn Mersim, I think it was. But uh it was amazing looking at his discoveries because mathematically and scientifically his findings were fantastic. Damascus Syria. Yeah. The place we've ravaged. <laughs> Wow. Sadly. Re- yeah. Returning to, to the making fun of a pope, I, I would be curious about, you know, just that time period. And, yeah. You know, and it, it's hard for us looking back 500 years versus 700 years. But, you know, as I recall, you know, you, you go and you look at some of the the, the paintings, you know, I, I think the Last Judgment painting, and I'm pretty sure there may be a couple popes in there or... Uh, um, is it in Purgatory and it, Dante's, yes. you know, so I, I, I don't know whether that was socially acceptable then, you know, to, to uh, if, if there was a, a pope or a bishop, you know, who you weren't super, you know, on board with to, you know, when you're drawn hell to, to throw them in there and, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it might be a if a, you, a little taboo. Yeah, yeah. If you want your theory approved or your you know yeah, whatever but, your thesis and you want it to be mainstream, I mean, having the pope on your side really helps you. It does a little bit. Fair. Again, especially since they started the universities. Yeah. I mean, we're gonna get that later because I actually actually went through and I, I cataloged to show people some of the universities that were started by uh, by the Catholic Church directly and, and other ones that were started by Christians later. So it's really cool. Once you start going through and you start realizing all the different people that were significant in starting these institutions, it's fantastic. Um, that brings us to, I wanted to highlight, I wanted to highlight some of these, um, some of these people because it turns out that the church has been very instrumental in much of the findings. So uh, Gregory J. Mendel is the father of genetics. Now Gregory Mendel was a scientist and he was uh, in the monastery in which he lived was was involved in scientific research, particularly in agricultural research. He was actively studying the inheritance of traits for which he painstakingly cultivated and interbred over 28,000 plants. We know of his work because he published his findings in scientific journals. And to be fair, in his research, he made extensive use of the monastery's garden. But he was no mere gardener. <laughs> Mendel published his findings in 1866 in an article entitled Experiments in Plant Hybridization in the Proceedings of the Natural History Society of Brune. The publication was fairly obscure. Nevertheless, in 1900, Hugo de Vries, Carol Corrins, and Yvonne Tuschenmach independently published on the same topic. They cited his earlier paper, thus making the beginning of his reputation as the father of genetics. So how cool is that? It is cool. Very is he cool. He was a priest. He was a priest. <laughs> so what's, what's really cool is that, and he was a monk as well, but... Mm-hmm. um. What's, what's really cool is that, again, the church was very instrumental in pushing forward uh, what we know today as modern science. So, um, Father Angelo Secchi, 
This one is mind-blowing. So, just to go through this, let's see. In astrophysics, he was one of the first to systematically study the spectra of stars. He made spectroscopic observations of over 4,000 stars and classified them by type. Uh, he also was in solar physics. Such he made a myriad of observations of the sun in diverse ways. He took spectra of the solar atmosphere, corona, and prominences. He made numerous observations of sunspots. During eclipses, he photographed solar eclipses. On top of that, planetary science. He was among the first to examine planets as other worlds to study. Terrestrial magnetism. <laughs> Such established the first geomagnetic observation in Italy. He had a laboratory constructed with several instruments for measuring the strength and direction of the Earth's magnetic field and how it varies with time. And in geography, he conducted a geodetic survey of the Vin Appia Antica, one of the main roads leading to Rome and an important base for many of the maps of Italy of today. In, meteor in meteorology, <laughs> Secchi was interested in atmospheric physics and the connection between atmospheric phenomenon and other phenomena, such as solar activity. He invented a device called the meteograph to measure and record several relevant parameters for this study. He also developed a network of weather stations throughout Italy, connected by telegraph. In oceanography, <laughs> at the invitation of Commander Alexander Kieldy, or Cieldy, of the Pontifical Navy, aboard the corvette Immaculata Concision, Secchi carried out experiments on the measurement of the clarity of ocean water. He lowered brightly colored disks into the water until they were no longer visible and developed a standard for this measurement and its interpretation. Even today, water clarity is assessed by lowering bright or black and white disks called Secchi disks into the water. Mm. This this guy is just was just remarkable. That's all he did? That's it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, he lagged behind a little, but... <laughs> Really, he needed a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, how fascinating is this? That it's like, yeah, I have to do mass on Sunday, and then I have to go to the middle of the ocean to test this theory. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I work actually in a Jesuit school. So I, the Jesuit specific, that specific order is one that I know a decent amount of, about. And... The founder of the Jesuits was St. Ignatius. Um, a big part of Ignatius's kind of conversion experience came to this realization of, of finding God in all things. Okay. And so this idea that, you know, ordinary reality is, is sacred, you know, and mm -hmm. um, you might, uh, looking at kind of the creation account, you know, it's always God spoke and there was. And so you kind of have this sense, you know, it's all the word of God. You know, there's a space in, in scriptures to treat ordinary reality reverently. Yeah. Um, and a part of that also has involved that, that Jesuits have have day jobs. Um, <laughs> they're, they don't run parishes. They, uh, you know, there are Jesuit astronomers. Maybe you'll, you know, I don't know if that may show up a little bit later on here, but there are, are many Jesuits teach. Um so it's 
you know, and and a lot of them, you know, there are a lot of Jesuit universities. Every year at uh, the NCA Final Four, you have you know Georgetown, Gonzaga, Xavier, um, you know, St. Louis University. Um, oh, there's Loyola and uh, Boston College. So, you know, Jesuits have been very tied in with education. And as a result, you know, many Jesuits, their, their day job is, is in um, things that are as ordinary or, you know, in many ways, extraordinary is extraordinary. planetary science and terrestrial magnetism, as you said, with uh, Father Angelo here. Um, but sometimes too, it, that has there's been a degree of tension that has went with that in their relationship um, with the church. Um, it's also meant too that you know Jesuits have often worked very closely with people who are Protestant and people who are <laughs> uh, even atheists. You know, in in some of these areas. Okay. Um, so that's great. That's it. It's a good point. It, I mean, that's it's great having you here to enlighten us on that because. Um, the Jesuit order is fascinating, and well, our current pope is Jesuit, and um, it's it's fascinating to get the backgrounds in uh, in things they've done. Yeah, and you know, one thing about Jesuits too that I think kind of is an interesting thing to be aware of: Saint Ignatius, um, he, even you know, he was right around that time of the Reformation. He was, I think, a contemporary of Martin Luther, um, and. You know, these different orders, they just kind of have little different uh, characters to them. And, and the Jesuits, uh, a guiding element is called the spiritual exercises. Okay. So St. Ignatius didn't, uh, he, he taught people a, a model of discerning based on scriptures. Mm. Um, I actually think this, the exercises, you know, probably would be really appealing to a lot of people who, who are Protestant. Because um, it's really just meditating on on where we should go based on scriptures, based how we should live, how we should act, like the social um, sciences, right? Yeah. You know, again, kind of where that maybe at times creates a little tension is, you know, it's there's a level of freedom that kind of goes with that that might lead people to sometimes question. Okay. Um, you know, it it and and so I think that's where there's uh, historically maybe been some tension with the, the Jesuits, but I think it's an open-ended approach. I've always really been struck. You know, a discernment spirituality to me is based on, it really starts with a question, what should I do? You know, not with an answer, why should I do what I want to do? Right. And I think, you know, that is compatible, I think, with science. You know, science starts with questions. And if we have an attachment to answers, you know, that can be really threatening. But I, I always like to say, you know, with the Gospels, you know, Jesus didn't say, you know, blessed are the righteous. You know, blessed are the ones who got it figured out. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who are trying to figure it out. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, that's more of a, a humility model. It's more of a searching model. Um, yeah, that's a great so. point. If, speaking from the Protestant side, I would say that self-reflection is scary. 
to put a mirror in front of you and just have to face that, even the word meditation, you're almost talking with certain evangelical denominations. It's almost heresy to say the word, you know, meditation. No, 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 no. You know, things like that, that force you to look inward and really spiritually self-assess yourself. That's a scary thing. So, all right. So that's my point from the Protestant. (laughs) So we are scared of that. But I got a question about this guy. Oh, yeah, please. Uh, St. The, well, I wouldn't the say one before this. saint, but I would say, I would say yeah, father. <coughs> father, 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 I'm sorry. This guy's done a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah. He's done a lot of remarkable stuff. Absolutely. He's made a lot of advances. Absolutely. Growing up in school, learning about science, I could tell you about Einstein. Why wouldn't I be able to tell you anything about this guy? Touche. Touche. Now, what's funny is I'm not that saying that he's made greater you know discoveries i'm not even saying one is greater than the other or not i'm saying it's significant yeah Uh, i agree i agree i mean tons i know about the theory of relativity you know so just interesting to note what's funny you say that because that's going to lead us into our next father (laughs) monsignor georges lemetier i hope i pronounced that correctly (laughs) He was actually the creator of the Big Bang Theory. But what's funny is, get this, guess who one of his contemporaries was? Hubble, right? Well, Hubble was within his time frame, but one of the people that he actually interacted with was Einstein. <laughs> Which is why I posed that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so Lemaitre made several contributions in mathematics. He contributed to the theory of spiners for the use of physical calculations. He also was interested in numerical methods for solving complicated equations. He developed many mathematical methods to aid in the calculations of numerical solutions. One such technique was effectively the same as the fast Fourier transform, which came several decades later. Even though the taught the method to the students, who in turn taught it to their errors he never published it he also was an early proponent of the use of calculating machines to aid in finding numerical solutions to physical problems as early as the 1930s he made use of the different analyzers of Vanuva Bush at MIT at Levine he founded the laboratory of numerical research the first computer laboratory in Belgium with his nephew Gilbert, he developed a computer language called AutoCode. Lemaitre also contributed to the three-body problem in physics by finding a coordinator shift that simplified the calculations. So here we are. And by the way, I didn't include the picture, but there's pictures of him with Einstein. Yes, I knew I've heard this guy's name before, though. Yeah. Wasn't there some kind of controversy out there that Einstein plagiarized some of his work? I didn't. I've heard that. I know that there's books out there of Einstein um, plagiarizing some stuff. I think the yeah. with him the issue is more that he didn't really get credit for the the Big Bang theory. He doesn't tend to get mentioned. I agree. Issue of it okay. was it was later. You're correct. Um, but Lemaitre actually is the one that created it. Um, it's funny because one of the books I read. Again, I didn't include this in the slides, but one of the books I read said that the reason why he created the Big Bang Theory is because somebody challenged him. They said, well, the universe is a constant. It's always been. 
And he said, we'll know when it had to start. And so they challenged him and they, <laughs> they said, well, if it had to start, how do you show that? So then he went about to try to find out if the earth could show that it had to start. And that's when he found out the Big Bang Theory. Is this still a theory? <laughs> I mean, come on, there's a whole TV show about it. <laughs> Which sadly just came to an end. I cried. <laughs> well, and I think even gravity is still, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. we can observe it, but there, theory is a, a little more of a substantial yeah. statement for yeah. in it, like a scientific principle than, right. you know, when we use it, you know. Yeah, it's funny to bring that up because, and I don't know if you've if you've delved into this further in, in the school or not, but there's actually two thoughts of gravity, and I didn't know that. Um, and, and these are both scientifically founded, but one thought is that gravity is the is the the is the body pulling you towards it, right? That that each body has its own gravity, right? And that is a legitimate, as we understand it, that's how it works. But, and this also has a lot of peer-reviewed papers on it, the other theory of gravity is that the universe, space itself, pushes you. And so you're being pushed by space itself, and that's what creates the gravity. And Einstein actually had to try to figure out which one it was. That's what made it so interesting. Of course, I mean, he could figure it out. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm comfortable with the theory of gravity. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, no one really knows. Yeah, <laughs> it's well, really yeah. And and I think at its best, you know, I think one of the areas where where science and you know is really compatible with religion is that it it, it does lead us to mystery. Yeah, you know that it kind of blows our mind a little bit. Yeah, um, and you know I think that can be sometimes threatening. You know, and as much as religion sometimes gives us a sense we have it figured out, um, and I, I'm not sure again that I, that that's what Jesus was trying to do. You know, the the parables are described as you know as opposed to myths. Myths are stories that explain. Yeah. You know why the status quo as is as it is. You know, I tell my students, you know, to explain a myth. You know, there was a, a mountain, and upon the top of the mountain was a babe, and you know, in a in a cradle, and a light shone between the clouds, and the Lord spake, saying, "Mr. LaGuardia, you shall teach my people." And it's you know that story explains to them why they should listen to me. But parables actually undermine our assumptions mm. you know i mean the 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 older brother in the prodigal son is an entirely understandable person you know he's done everything right you know yeah and yet is he right and you know the story kind of says no you've done everything right but your brother came home and you're so hung up on your on yourself you can't just embrace him and be happy to see him you know so it's there's that <laughs> You know, I think both, you know, at their best, they, they it's an area where they go together. And I think, you know, what it ultimately ends up doing, you know, if, if for a, a person of a religious back, background to think about science is it makes us have to have a little bigger God, you know. I agree. Okay. And, yeah. and be comfortable with question and dialogue. Yeah. 
you know. But as soon as something becomes fact, that space for that dialogue seems to go away. You know. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, like even with gravity, I mean, because the whole issue of gravity, you know, if it's still a theory or not. I, I, that could be a whole other podcast, right? <laughs> oh, easily. But then, you know, the law of buoyancy makes... Buoyancies. Did I say that right? Yeah. That makes sense to me. Something Mean. weighs more than something else. It has more mass and it'll fall. Or is that displacement theory? Oh, right. Well, <laughs> theory. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but the moment something becomes fact, it's like, nope. It, yeah. There's no discussion. There's no room for it. Well, that's actually a great... A great uh, allegorical synopsis too, because the buoyancy theory is also the the displacement theory, mm-hmm. but each one of those is relative to its own idea and its own theory. So, <laughs> yeah, we're chasing our tails. <laughs> Which, that's by the way, that's why we got Elvis juice. <laughs> this is also why you should make one sure. more of these. It'll this will all start making more sense to us, sense. <laughs> right? <laughs> Which I I did get a chance to go to uh, one of uh, one of uh, David Laguardia's talks here, and it was great. I thoroughly Thank enjoyed you. it. It was fantastic on social justice. It oh, was cool. it was really it was it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. There it was a lot of good conversation in the room. It was a great presentation. Uh, great crackers and wine. So, <laughs> yeah, kind of like here, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, again, hats off. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, it was appreciated <laughs> you being there. <laughs> yeah, it, it, and 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 uh, I look forward to the next one. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's you know all this stuff. What what you guys do here? You know, we're we're grappling with, you know things that we're passionate about, you know, and, you know, what's better than doing that with people that you care about and, you know, I mean, thinking about things that matter is a a good thing to do, so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Safe place to do it. Yeah. And I didn't want to leave Gumby out, so (laughs) I I include some Protestants in this as well. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, Anthony Flew, anybody familiar with him? Mm Mm-mm. Okay, so Anthony Flew... Uh, Anthony, I'm sorry, Anthony Flew. Uh, he was an English professor uh, at Oxford, if I recall right. And um, he was a staunch atheist. He was a teacher of uh, English and philosophy and uh, a very staunch atheist. However, in his research, because being a professor at Oxford, he did a lot of cross studies, and it was his studies going into DNA that convinced him that maybe it's not as cut as dry as I thought it was. So to quote him, he said, I now believe there is a God. I now think the evidence does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown beyond almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinary diverse elements to work together. Mm-hmm. Now, how cool is it? Now, it wasn't the Bible that convinced him. Here's the funny part, right? It wasn't theology that convinced him. Yeah. It wasn't uh, uh, philosophy that convinced him. It wasn't the Bible that convinced him. Mm-hmm. It was DNA. 
It was his own scientific method. Yeah. So it was by studying science that convinced him to be a believer. So it kind of harkens back to Romans one twenty, right? When he said that because of creation, you know, all men can stand attested to that they have seen the works of God, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but, <laughs> you know, it's because of creation that shows the testament. Yeah. In fact, I think it was a Jesuit priest who said uh, that when the um, that there's two testaments, there's the Bible and there's creation, right? Oh, I didn't know that. That's an interesting one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there is a Jesuit, and I, the name might have been Hopkins, but it, he says the earth is charged with the glory of God, you know, and kind of that idea. But, um, yeah, I think, you know, again, science is... it. it from our side, I think we don't need to see it as frightening. You know, I mean, you, you yeah. think about, you know, a lot of it's pointing to 140 billion galaxies, you I know, agree. and the nearest one, I think they say, is Andromeda, which is two and a half million light years away, which that means that light's been traveling, yeah. I think, 186,000 miles a second for two and a half million years. And that's our neighbor, right. you know. So, <laughs> you know, when you start thinking about, you know, just, you know, this amazing universe we live in you know and yeah. and again you know it, it, it ought humble us but there's there's i think there's a lot of good that goes with being humbled yeah you know too yeah, agreed yeah there's something ki uh, kind of comforting about that order to the uh, it, it feels natural you know when i think of the word logos in the new testament you know the natural order of things john um, 1 1 yeah or like the, uh, yes, he is Catholic. E. Michael Jones talks about the logos, you know, giving order to things and the natural order of nature and life and God's creation being ordered. Yeah. And then anything that opposes that, it's just not part of God's character. You know, and then, then it brings rebellion and it brings um, revolution going against the natural order of God's creation. Right. But that's an interesting thing. That gets into the idea of natural law. And, you know, part of the interesting element of that is is our understanding of nature is is uh is um you know, it's it's changing, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. even in some of that natural law was, you know, in the scriptures as well. You know, the 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 kosher law, right. you, know, you don't eat shellfish because there's something unnatural about these crabs that walk on the bottom of the, the you know, the, the, we just the sea floor. We but, did, you know, so we totally did. <laughs> you know, so our understanding of nature is, is not static. It's dynamic. Yeah. You know, and right. it can change. Not a finished product. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think I was just trying to tell people, you know, if you eat something that's eating what you're ex excreting, it's probably not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But some would argue it's delicious too, <laughs> especially with butter. <laughs> um, Melted I, butter, yeah, that's good. <laughs> Again, another Protestant for Gumby. In fact, Sweet. an evangelical. Not that I'm keeping score. Number, <laughs> number two, Francis Collins. Now, Francis Collins fascinates me, and, I, and even before going Catholic, he was one of the people I, I truly loved. All right, he was the person that mapped the human genome. Now, you don't get much more scientific than the guy who mapped the human genome. <laughs> How bored was he? <laughs> right? <Wow. laughs> so uh, here's a quote from him. He said, where did that come from? I reject the idea that 
it, it, that is an evolutionary consequence because that moral law sometimes tells us that the right thing to do is very self-destructive. If I'm walking down the riverbank and a man is drowning, even if I don't know how to swim very well, I feel this urge that the right thing to do is to try to save that person. Evolution would tell me exactly the opposite. Preserve your DNA. Mm. Who cares about the guy who's drowning? He's one of the weaker ones. Let him go. It's your DNA that needs to survive. And yet, that's not what's written within me. That's pretty powerful. Right? A Protestant. A Protestant. <laughs> but it's true. I mean, yeah. that's, that's, uh, that's the whole wrestling of humanity. And he's got a great testimony. For those who will see yeah. the, the link, he was actually on PBS. And this testimony was given to PBS. It's not on a Christian site. This is actually on PBS. Yeah. And he goes through and explains why he's a Christian. And it's powerful, powerful story. This is only one quote from the article. And it's a fantastic way to go through and find out how a scientific mind, one of the best most studied scientific minds of our time actually came to Christ not because, again, not because of the Bible, but because of what transpires philosophically within a person. Yeah. If, if, this, if what he said, if that comment is true and has truth to it, then I, I would say that evolution, we have let evolution evolve in some very unnatural ways today. Because... I, I would believe that some people would walk past a person who needs help, not even because that they feel like their life is in danger, but because they can't take their eyes off their phone, or they can't pop their head up, or they have somewhere to be because they're busy, busy, or they need to be here, or they need to be there, or their life's just more important to, to help someone like that. Right. And did you... Know? Did you uh, or any later on, are we going to talk about Ter de Chardin? You know what? I didn't include them, so go ahead. But this ahead. speaks to what you were getting at, Gumby. Uh, his actual name, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, a Jesuit priest, a paleontologist. Um, so he actually, he was involved in digging up fossils. And uh, one of the ones was called the Peking Man, which was a 400,000-year-old hominid. I've read about that. And, uh, and so he, he believed in evolution. Of course. Um, and at that point, you know, the church was uneasy with it. And I think, Aaron, one of the really the interesting things that and important things I think a lot of your your notes get at is, is, you know, Christianity has a a positive history with science. Absolutely. But it's it's you know, it's checkered, too. You know, it's as all things are, you know, there is it's you know, there there are a lot of moments where, you know, the Christianity resisted. Right. things that were, were scientific. So Teilhard was, got into pretty big trouble. He wasn't allowed to publish. He wasn't really allowed to develop his thoughts because at that point the church says you can't believe in evolution. It would call into question things. And um, and again, you know, Gumby, earlier you were talking about, you know, your background as a, a Protestant. And I think, you know, one positive thing I would say kind of in, in the Protestant tradition is, is you know, that that spirit of questioning, you know, and that space to question. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, at that point in the church, there was kind of an uneasiness with it. Yeah. Um, 
one might say it evolved, you know, over time. Okay. Anyways, yeah. to, to speak to what you were you were getting at, um, before he was kind of not able to really develop it further, I, he felt evolution didn't have to be inconsistent with with or incompatible, I should say, with you know Christianity. And the way he came to see it was, and this is probably an oversimplification, but Jesus points the direction we need to go as a species. Um, and, mm. you know, so many traditions have this. There's a Native American story about the two wolves where, you know, and the, the Native American grandparent says, and all of us, there's these two wolves fighting for supremacy. One is kind and loving and gentle, and one is angry and fearful and, and mean. Mm-hmm. And the grandchild says, well, which one's going to win? And the grandparent says, well, whichever one, you know, you feed. And I think in a sense, you know, that point of the, the Protestant scientist you brought up, I, you changed to the slide, so I don't remember <laughs> what his name was. But, you know, that we do have, you know, altruism in our nature. And there's a lot of interesting research that, like, you know, shows that, you know, there, there's there's historically been some value you know we didn't we we don't didn't thrive because we have sharper teeth right yeah you know but because we have this capacity to connect with each other to to feel each other's pain but we also have this side of us that is you know selfish that's as you've used several times Aaron you know egotistical that we're kind of the center of the universe and and for Teilhard you know that's really the gospel challenge is you know, like to become, you know, I think Paul kind of has this idea, like alter Christ's, you know, mm-hmm. loving. You know, Jesus isn't just right, and since we believe in him, therefore we're right. Jesus is pointing, and that that logic, I think, for both Catholics and Protestants is why at times we've coexisted with some pretty bad stuff and, yeah. and been responsible for it. Yeah. But, you know, it's this call to be a different kind of person, you know, and, and it's hard work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 I, th- I think a lot of people in the, in the filter of their own country, religion, or philosophy, they go through that. I mean, I read a fantastic article. It was just yesterday on um, how Americans forget that the reason why we won <laughs> against Hitler was because of the Soviet Union. And so many people forget that. For every one American that died, 80 Soviet Union Russians died. Yeah. If it wasn't for the Soviet Russia, we would have lost the war. And so many people forget little pieces of history like that. And they're just like, well, yeah, we won. Yeah, but we won because of other people. It was the collaboration of the other countries with Soviet Russia. I mean, think about, think about that number. One American to 80 Russian Soviets. Yeah. That's a, that's a heavy toll. They paid the biggest toll during the war, and we won because of that. But we forget that because we don't want to think of them that they could do any good. You know, And they have done, I mean, let's face it, they've done tons of wrong. Right? They've done tons of wrong. But we don't want to ascribe any good to them either. And then, so we look at through our filters, and and we forget what they did. So, would you say then that the Protestant mindset 
if we're talking about the term or the definition of evolution has kind of been distorted because it thinking about how I grew up with all my teaching, I would look at evolution to say that it, it almost supported things like conquest supported things like I'm a stronger gene than you. I have stronger DNA than you. Therefore I'm going to take what's yours and make it mine before you do that to me. Right. You know, to me that seems to almost support the idea of, and then use whatever justification I need to it for lies or whatever to tell people or even myself. Yeah. Um, you know, self-deception, but <clears throat> the idea of evolution has been kind of hijacked. Yeah. You so say I, I guess I'm asking, I mean, is evolution a dog eat dog world? There's, I don't think so, but I, I think I come from the, from the the branch of first Protestants and, and now now in Catholicism, but I come from that branch where I study the text deeply. I know where it comes from, and so I have no problem with evolution. You know, with evolution for me, and we could do a whole episode on this. Um, maybe we will. <laughs> evolution for me uh, is is not an issue because if you go back to Genesis, I, I don't see a conflict because historically written genesis is not a creation tale in fact in hebrew there's not a single creative term used so let me ask this a different way then all right can the use of violence be uh used for the growth of evolution or in support of evolution mm, that's a great question or has it been huh. used well, and I mean, that's where was, you get like, yeah, I mean, at times historically, you know, you look at the late 19th century, you know, they, they had kind of that idea of social Darwinism where it was, you know, we own the, the, the coal mine, you know, <laughs> and it's survival of the fittest. And yeah. therefore, you know, you know, and, and, and almost as an excuse for no morality, but I, I would wonder whether that's an example of people using evolution for their interests, just as sometimes people use religion for their interests, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and uh, you know, one other point that kind of goes back to the initial way you said it, there's one scientist, E.O. Wilson, and I don't know his religious background, but he, uh, he de developed a theory that evolution and humanity has worked on two levels. Mm. And he said... Um, it seems that groups of humans that were more altruistic thrived. Okay. So those groups did better. Now within those groups, the ones who were maybe a little more selfish benefited. Okay. But there, and, and so, you know, people maybe are tempted to say, listen, I've looked out for number one and it worked for me. Yeah. So everybody should look out for number one. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, his theory, I think the value of it, you know, it kind of common sense makes sense. If you have 8 billion people Working, looking out for number one, it doesn't, yeah, maybe it worked for you, but maybe it worked for you because a lot of other people were, were following laws and respecting their neighbor and treating the people the way they wanted to be treated. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, there's probably in likelihood there's, there's a lot more to yeah. nature, you know? I mean, you even see altruism in some animal species, you know, you where do. they found like dogs that have raised other animals. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's so 
So you're saying it's not always the strong that survives. <laughs> Join us for the rest of the conversation in part two.